Welcome to this episode of the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. The mission of the Greenville Oaks Church of Christ is to inspire people to follow Jesus because we are convinced that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. Find out more about Greenville Oaks or connect with us online at greenvilleoaks.org. As always, we ask that you subscribe to, rate, and review our podcast. It makes it easier for others to find us. And now, on to this week's message with Lead Minister Colin Packer. This is your first time in the series, or maybe you've seen the room arranged like this for a couple of weeks now. We're in a series called Unitable, and the table is the central part of that because what we've been trying to communicate in this series is in a world that's divided by so many things, the church has often found itself not being healing for that uh, division, but it's been another example of that division. And so often in the Protestant church, uh, in our seeking to find unity around Scripture, which is a great impulse. It's our different kinds of beliefs. It's our differences about principles of faith that have been the things that have divided us. But the reality is we're never going to agree on everything when it comes to the Bible or, or how to change the world or so many different things. That's not going to be the thing that unites us. What's going to unite us is our commitment to our shared Lord. What's going to unite us is this table, actually. And the table's our hope in the church for this. It's also our hope in the world for people who find themselves in disagreement that if we can find ourselves at table... It can shape everything. It can open opportunities to hear story and to see the humanity behind people instead of just the opinions we sometimes see on social media or around us. So we talked week one about that. Week two, we talked about how, what unity isn't, that we have some misconceptions about unity that are causing us problems and causing us to feel like we need to divide and separate out when really that may not be the case. The unity isn't uniformity. Unity isn't the absence of conflict. The unity isn't the absence of discomfort. This morning, I'm, I'm glad to have Todd vote with me. We're going to be sharing this message together, and it's been a joy to get to prep with him and to preach already once this morning. Uh, but Todd is a, a, serves as the, the, the head of a, an organization, Mission Alive, that's planting churches all over the United States, doing great work after also serving as a missionary in Africa and a preacher here in the U.S. as well. And we are blessed to have him as one of our shepherds, and I'm excited for this opportunity to share this message with him. Uh, John 17 is where I want to begin this morning. So if you have your Bibles or your phones, whatever, uh, feel free to open there. We'll have the words on the screen also. But John 17 is a powerful passage. It's a, a prayer that Jesus prays, uh, likely around the, the Last Supper or around that time before he goes to the cross. The scene kind of starts in John 13, and we see an extended discourse. And, and this is the prayer that Jesus prays at the end of his life. And we talked and touched on this a little bit last week, but I want to come back to it. Uh, I want to read in John 17, beginning in verse 20. Jesus prays, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know 
that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. If you weren't aware about it, Jesus prayed a prayer on your behalf near the end of his life. He prays for his disciples in John 17, but you also notice here he says, I pray for those who will believe in me through your message, which means he's praying for us. He advocates for us. And this is one of the prayers he prays. God, may they be one as you are one. And why is it that unity is important? Well, he lays it out in these verses so that the world may believe you've sent me. Again, in verse 23, then the world will know that you have sent me and love them even as you have loved me. In other words, if we want to be an evangelistic people, we want to unite the world. If we want to draw people to the saving message of Jesus, the unity of the church is one of the main ways that they see that to be possible. Because why would you want to be a part of another organization that's already divided when you have so many other groups you're a part of? But if there's a group that could somehow find unity in the midst of those disagreements, there's something that might be worth joining. Evangelism is rooted in the unexpected, off-putting sometimes unity with people we don't want to be united to. Or in the words of David Lipscomb, if you heard of Lipscomb University in Nashville, Tennessee, David Lipscomb was a a leader in the restoration movement, our uh, churches and churches of Christ. He said this about unity. Everyone who is united to Christ is united to one another and you can't do anything about it. I like that, right? We're stuck together. We're family if we're under Christ. When we share at the communion table, What we're doing is we're sending a cosmic message to the world around us that you can try to divide us all you want, or maybe to the cosmic powers, the powers and principalities that often hide and lurk behind those realities of division. And we're saying to them, no, we're standing in defiance against what you're trying to do to divide because what unites us is stronger than the number of things that we disagree about and can divide us. How many of you recognize this picture we're about to show up there? Maybe from a Dan Brown novel you read, hopefully... uh, (laughs) from uh, better art in the past. This is uh, Da Vinci's The Last Supper. In the Gospel of John, this scene occurs a few chapters before the prayer that we just read in John 17. The scene unfolds in John chapter 13. There's a lot going on around this table, right? Jesus invites them in. He washes his disciples' feet, takes the place of a servant. He tells them, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. They don't fully understand what he's saying by that. We come to understand that later, and we share in that ritual each week. He also uh, is dipping his bread into the same bowl with Judas, who's going to betray him. And then he he tells Peter, you're going to deny me three different times before the rooster crows tomorrow morning. But the amazing thing we forget about this scene is the fact that these 12 disciples found themselves around a table to begin with. We tend to think of the disciples as just kind of a group of people that must have been kind of the same, right? They must have grown up the same way. They're just kind of a group, the 12 disciples. But if you look closely at this group... It's a miracle they even found themselves around that table to begin with, because they're more different than you would imagine. Todd, talk a little bit with us about who would have found themselves at that table. Some things we don't think about often, I think, about that group. So what do you remember about these 12 guys that are with Jesus around the table? Do you remember that there were probably, at least it seems as if there were three sets of brothers around that table? Uh, that two of the sets of brothers were in a business partnership together, it it seems like. That most of them were Galileans, but there were two of them that were Samaritans, and one, Judas Iscariot, was the only guy from Judea. Do you remember that about half of them were married and the other half were not married? Um, Or that probably nine of them were uneducated, but three of them were fairly well-educated? 
You see, when we think of these disciples, we tend to think of them as a group, the disciples. And we kind of miss a little bit the, all of the differences, the regional differences and perhaps the age differences and, and some of the value differences that would have been in this table, even business concerns that might have created conflict among these 12 guys. But I think probably the one issue that would raise the greatest conflict among the 12 would have been their kind of religious political orientation, because it seems as if probably nine of them would have most closely aligned themselves with the way of thinking of the Pharisees. But two of them would have probably been aligned with the Sadducees, and one of them we know was a zealot. And, and, and I want to take uh, the, the, one, the zealot, Simon the zealot, and Matthew the tax collector as a case study. Think about this with me. Matthew, also known as Levi, probably upper middle class from an upper middle class family, was a tax collector, which meant he was indebted to the Romans who were the occupying army in Galilee. Which means, as one working in conjunction with the Roman occupying army, in the eyes of many of his countrymen, he would have been, would have been viewed as a collaborator. And one of those that would have viewed him as a collaborator would have been Simon the Zealot. Because Simon had become involved with, politically active, in this right-wing nationalistic organization that was a semi-terrorist organization, devoted to kicking the Romans out and, if need be, assassinating Romans and anybody that cooperated with the Romans, which means there were two guys sitting at that table that could not have been farther apart on the political spectrum, and one of them might have had a contract out on the other one. <laughs> sitting at the table. But really what I want you to think about is I want, to th I want you to think not just how far apart these guys were sitting at the table, but I want you to think about the price they may have paid to sit at the table. The groups of people that were behind Simon the Zealot, all of his zealot compatriots, and all of the Sadducees, the business owners, the people in alliance with the Romans, all of those people who may have ostracized these two men because they sat around the same table. And this table that Jesus called these guys around, it's not the first time God called his people to gather around a table with others who are very different from themselves. I want to take you back to Exodus 20 when God instituted the Passover feast on which the Last Supper was based. Do you remember that in Exodus 20, when God institutes the Passover, he calls them to invite to their Passover table all the aliens and strangers that were in their land? God's been doing this a long time. In fact, the Apostle Paul, a few years after Jesus and the 12 gathered around this table. The Apostle Paul will make note that we are all aliens and strangers at God's table. Do you think maybe that sometimes we underestimate the power 
of this table? When the disciples gathered uh, to eat at a table at this last supper, they were saying something. They were saying, we gather around this table together despite our differences and our disagreements. Why? For the sake of our neighbors, zealots and Sadducees, educated and uneducated fishermen and tax collectors, so that they will all find their place at God's table. Just by gathering at this table, they were defiantly rebuking, standing against those cosmic forces that work to divide us in our world. And let me tell you, those forces are well at work in this world. Amen? When we step up to this table, what we're saying is, no. We don't buy into that being our primary reality or the primary tribe we identify with. It's this table that changes all that. Just by gathering at this table, they were sharing the love of God with their neighbors. They were saying, despite our many differences, we are united by the love of God. And that force is stronger than what divides. And Jesus is our host who makes this possible. As I referenced last week, and I want to talk about again, Ephesians 2 is a powerful passage about the dividing wall of hostility that has been torn down. So what the gospel does is more than just send us to heaven. It also unites us. It makes us one humanity. Listen again to this verse in Ephesians 2, second half of verse 15. His purpose, Paul writes, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. This is a powerful act that we do. And to think we've divided about this very table, right? Well, should it be unleavened bread or not? Should it be wine or should it be juice? Should it be one cup or should it be many cups? Is this just a memorial feast or is there something more at work that this actually becomes the body and blood of Jesus? We've missed the power and the miracle of this table dividing over the very things about how we come together to eat at this table. And in that disagreement, we've missed what is possible, what is made possible through Jesus and this meal. You know, every generation of believers has to embody the unity of this table in a fresh way for their time and place. That was true of the early church. In the 12 guys that surrounded this table, they had to figure out how to embody the unity of Christ as they went forward. That was true in the Reformation in Europe 500 years ago. How are they going to embody the unity of Christ as they gather around the table. It was true in our own denominational history, the American Restoration Movement. Unity was clearly pursued by Alexander Campbell and Barton W. Stone and so many others who are the fathers of, of this movement. That's right. This church we're a part of is part of a movement that since the early 1800s has seen unity as important, and we've not always held up to that standard. It's hard to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Think about what was going on at that time in the early 1800s. This is on the heels of the uh, Declaration of Independence. This is on the heels of the Constitution being written. The colonies are growing in size and number. I want you to think about these people who are coming to this new nation, right? These are people who've come from state churches that believe very differently in different places. And, and they come and they establish colonies. And some of those colonies are religiously free and open. Others of those are particular colonies that fit uh, specific denominations or those state churches that they came from. 
And so on the East Coast, they divide up. On the, in the northern colonies, the New England colonies, they're largely Puritan uh, churches and colonies. In the middle colonies, there's a mixture of Quakers and Catholics, Lutherans and Jews and others. The southern colonies were more Baptist and Anglican in their makeup. But as the frontier emerged to the West, as the frontier began to grow, they moved out of these state churches in Europe. They moved out of these colonies that were pretty distinct themselves, and they began to move West, and they began to mix with one another. And you can imagine what kind of conflict that began to cause. And so in the midst of all that, there was a revival that was happening, the Second Great Awakening. And it's in the midst of that that this unity movement begins to grow up. And God had placed on the hearts of two individuals in particular— Sometimes we refer to ourselves as the Stone Campbell movement. It was Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone that were primed for this time to lead this divided nation, this divided group of church people that couldn't get along to somehow come together through the power of the Holy Spirit, through working through this and the work of Scripture, a powerful thing. And it was, it was a movement of God. Barton Stone talked about unity and its importance this way. Let the unity of Christians be our polar star to which our attention and exertion shall be chiefly directed. Alexander Campbell stated it this way, by Christian unity, we understand a spiritual oneness with Christ. They believe that the division of the church was not acceptable for those who follow Jesus as Lord. And so they sought to unite Christians from across the many religious denominations to leave their division and to find unity with one another. But How? How do you bring unity in the midst of a divided world? How do you bring unity when all these people believe so many different things and they come from so many different backgrounds and they're trying to find their way? It wasn't through their agreed upon doctrines that they found agreement. In fact, as I've studied up and I've heard the story and dug into restoration history, it is remarkable the number of disagreements that Stone and Campbell had against each other. So this morning, uh, I'm going to play the role of Alexander Campbell for a moment. He's the more formal. I didn't dress up like I should have, I guess, for this, right? But the, he had it all together. And, uh, and then Stone was more the, you know, holy roller, holy spirit. Came from a little different, different tradition and background. I won't disparage you any more than that. How about that? <laughs> okay, thank you. But we're going to represent that for a moment about several beliefs. So the first of those is the Trinity. Now, if you're going to talk about a building block of faith, the Trinity ought to be a thing we can at least start to agree on, right? This is in the early creeds. We're trying to go back to scripture. Now, Alexander Campbell would have said, look, I believe in the Trinity, but he was so focused on the Bible. He said, you know, there's really nowhere in the Bible we can find that word Trinity. <laughs> so yeah, the Godhead is three in one. I get all that. Not quite sure what to call it. We want to use Bible terms, but yeah, I believe in the Trinity. That's, that's where I'd stand. But Stone was not at all a Trinitarian. In fact, he believed that the Son and the Spirit were subordinate to the Father. Uh, that would be perceived as heresy from a guy like Campbell, but in Stone's view, Trinitarianism is a, is a heresy. And then it comes to other things, right? Atonement is one of those uh, areas. Now, what is atonement, right? Atonement is how we become one with God again, how we're united to God in the midst of our sin. How, how is forgiveness possible? And how does God make that happen through the cross in particular and, and in Jesus? And, and, and Campbell was what we would refer to as somebody who believed in substitutionary atonement. Now, that's a big word that goes back to a song that some of us learned growing up. The song went like this. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. That's telling the story of substitutionary atonement. I couldn't be good enough for God to bring forgiveness to me. I needed a substitute. 
to come and be sacrificed on my behalf. And Stone would have said, that's exactly what happens to make us one with Jesus. Stone would have disagreed with substitutionary atonement. He was a guy that followed the moral influence uh, line of thinking in terms of atonement. It goes back to Abelard about 800 years before Stone and Campbell. And it's the idea that what God did through Jesus on the cross, what was that Jesus died as a demonstration of God's love, not as some way of paying a debt that an angry God needed paid. There's lots of atonement theories. It's kind of interesting. We'll leave that for another day. But the Holy Spirit's <laughs> another one of those areas of difference, divergence. This is, again, the Godhead, right? Holy Spirit. Uh, Campbell would have said, look, I believe in uh, probably there's an indwelling of the Spirit. He believed a lot more than what some of the future generations would say about word only. But he really did believe that it was through Scripture that the Spirit of God worked most powerfully. And it's where we discover our, our relationship with God, our oneness with God. It's how the Spirit worked most, perhaps. And, and Stone would have said, no way. The Spirit is not contained within the, the pages of the Bible. The Spirit is alive and active and working in people's lives even working in the lives of people before they come to Christ in order to lead them to Christ. That's a crazy thought. I'll tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> in times. All right. There's another one of those areas. Now we in, in churches of Christ, we tend to be more amillennial in our perspective. Of course, there are people within our church that hold a different perspectives on that. Amillennialism is really just the idea that, well, it's more of a metaphor. The thousand years, it's not a, an exact thousand year reign. Revelations doing something different than trying to draw out an idea about the rapture, those kinds of things. Uh, but when it came to these people believing in the, in, in this time, Campbell was a post-millennial. And what that means is he had a high view of human ability. He believed that it was actually going to be the church that through its unity was going to usher in the kingdom of God and Jesus second return that we're part of the millennium trying to do that. And so he had a periodical that he wrote in his, uh, his newspaper that was called the millennial harbinger, Right. That whole title was the idea of we're going we're gonna to go back to the core of what Scripture said. We're going to try to do it right, more simplistically, follow the Word of God. And if we can get unity to happen, then, then Christ will return because of our efforts through the Spirit. And, and Stone thought he was nuts. Stone was a premillennialist, like a lot of our neighbors who believed that the thousand-year reign of Christ was still yet to come. So these two guys, they, they didn't, just didn't agree on a whole lot of things. And I want you to hear this this morning because it can be easy to think, where in our tradition do we have resources for unity? Where's the background for the unity we're trying to call on? And we have this core to our theology that amidst the differences and the disagreements, Stone and Campbell were able to come together because they believed that unity was so important that they could overlook some of these differences that held, would have held them apart otherwise. It's remarkable. We've divided over things so much more secondary, so much less important than the core of what these guys disagreed with. And they believed that heresy was a thing. They would teach against and preach against certain things. They believed in the truth of what Scripture taught. But they also believed that unity was her or a, a disunity was heresy as well. It's a stain on the body of Christ not to maintain the unity that Jesus' death created possible and made possible for us through the Spirit of God. I'm grateful for this heritage. And Todd's grateful too, because part of this unity born out of this movement is part of what led you to faith as you were telling your story. Would you tell us more about that yeah. this morning? So I uh, was not raised in a uh, family that placed a high value on 
uh, living a life of faith. And so as a teenager and uh, early college student kind of was out there kind of doing my thing, uh, but not particularly concerned with God, but all the way through there had gone to different churches with friends of mine uh, all through the, the, the years there. And our family had a, a, a little bit of a history with the Methodist church. And so by the time I was in my late teens or 20 years old, um, I was pretty confused about all the different denominations and how do you make sense of that whole mess? And it just so happened that the summer that I was 20 years old, my sister, who's sitting over here today, uh, my sister happened to give me a New Testament. And I don't know why, but I picked the thing up and started reading it. Maybe it was the Holy Spirit working in me before I became a Christian. I started reading it. And I came across, I was reading the Gospel of John, and I came across this passage in John chapter 13. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And I thought, there it is. That, that's how you know. That's how you make sense of all of this mess was you're looking for people that really demonstrate love for one another. And I underlined it. Well, months later, I was dating a young lady, and she invited me to go to a Bible study in one of the dorms. And so I go, and I walk in the room, and this dorm room is packed wall to wall with college students. And the thing I noticed is all of the different collections of different kinds of people from different parts of campus that were in that room. There were athletes and student government people and band people and choir people and drama people and physics majors and all kinds of them. And I had never really seen many of them mixing together very well on campus. Everybody kind of kept to their own group. But here they were in this room, all studying the Bible. They all seemed to know each other and like each other. And that vision stuck in my head, and I went back and I found the passage where I had underlined, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. And I thought, there it is. These people must be God's people. They're demonstrating love for each other. When Stone and Campbell gathered around the table to take communion, they were saying that we gather around this table despite our differences and disagreements for the sake of all of our neighbors, our Baptist neighbors and Presbyterian neighbors and Methodist neighbors, our Trinitarian and non-Trinitarian neighbors, for the sake of all of our neighbors. They were saying we gather around this table so that all of our neighbors may find their place at God's table. And here we are 200 years later, gathering around a similar table, seeking to do the very same thing, seeking to maintain the unity of the Spirit. As I've said from the stage before, and I'll say it again, we always find what we're looking for. And this is true when it comes to unity in God's church. If you're looking for things that you have an agreement with one another, you will find so many things that you agree on. That's why all the time you will repeat this line to people when you get to know them. It's a small world, isn't it, right? There's so many things that we have in agreement that we're the same, and yet in our world there are so many things that push us to look at the opposite. What are the things you disagree on? 
What are the nuances that are just a little bit different? And the evil one loves to work in in those angles and try to find a way to divide us, to put our focus there. Because if you focus on what you, you have in common, you'll find all kinds of things. But if you focus on what you have different, you can find that in spades as well. Churches that value unity are churches that choose to look at the things that hold us together, that we have in common, rather than focusing on the things that tear us apart. And yet here at Greenville Oaks, we don't agree on everything, do we? I mean, sometimes it's hard to believe that there are people in our church who are so different from us. I mean, do you realize that sitting in these pews, there are both Aggie fans and Longhorn fans. <laughs> I was counting on that. <laughs> and you know, they pass the tray to each other without throwing it on each other. That's amazing. You know what? There are even Sooner fans here. <laughs> There are people here at the Greenville Oaks Church of Christ that love and root for Allen football. They were in first service. <laughs> All right, let's try that again. That love and root for Allen football. Woo! Okay. <laughs> and then there's the rest of us that love it when you cry. <laughs> oh, admittedly, that doesn't happen very often, but yeah. <laughs> There are people in this church who struggle to imagine how you can be a faithful Christian and vote for a Democratic candidate. And there are people in this church that struggle to imagine how you can be a faithful Christian and vote for a Republican candidate. It got quiet. Just like first service. <laughs> We have people in this church who believe that a woman's place is in the home raising children. We have people in this church who are bothered by the fact that women do not have a voice in the pulpit. We have people in this church who are universalists. We have people in this church who are fundamentalists. We have people in this church who are Calvinists. And we have people in this church who are Arminians. And we even have people in this church that know the difference. <laughs> we have people in this church who have proudly served in the military, and we have people in this church who believe that killing for any reason is wrong. We here, the Greenville Oaks Church of Christ, just like the early Christians, just like Stone and Campbell, we gather around this table to show that what unites us is stronger than what divides us. Amen. We gather around the table despite our differences and disagreements for the sake of all of our neighbors, our, our Aggie and Longhorn neighbors, our Democrat and Republican neighbors, our Calvinist and Arminian neighbors, our black neighbors and our white neighbors, our educated and uneducated neighbors, our wealthy and our less wealthy neighbors. We gather around the table 
for the sake of all of our neighbors, that they will find their place at God's table. Amen. Do you see how powerful this is? I mean, every time we gather around this table, it is a miracle. It's a miracle that's reverberating across the cosmos, declaring God's love and power in the face of the rulers and authorities in heavenly places that are intent on dividing us. Every time we gather around this table, it is an invitation to the whole world to come somehow and find your seat at God's table. The ancient rabbis tell this great story about the Red Sea crossing. It's in the book of Exodus, the story of God's people that have been in slavery and God frees them and he frees them through the Red Sea that he parts on their behalf. There's these two rabbis that tell the story basically about these two guys that were walking through the uh, Red Sea that day and one of them looked down and and, and he was complaining to the other, man, I just, don't you just hate it when you get sand in your sandals? And the other one said, yeah, I just hate that. I hate when I get it between my toes. And those rabbis say, and all the while, as they were complaining about the sand between their toes, they missed the miracle of the walls of water that were being held back for their liberation. And I think... In the midst of our divisions and disagreements, sometimes that's what the table can feel like. That's what church can feel like. Focusing on those things that are a little uncomfortable or frustrating. We miss the miracle that happens when even 12 people gather around a table, much less all that gather here on Sunday mornings. Don't miss the miracle of what we're about to partake in 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 just a moment. Thank you for listening to this message from the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. We hope this message helps you to inspire people to follow Jesus because you're convinced, like we are, that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. We invite you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. Discover more about the Greenville Oaks Church online at greenvilleoaks.org.